Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. Joining us today is Dr. Peter Fedichev, who I've been wanting to have on the show for some time. Dr. Fedichev has founded multiple biotech enterprises, and most relevant to our interests here is Jiro, a company that uses AI to address complex diseases and aging. Peter, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Obviously, we're going to want to hear all about Jiro, but before we dive into that, I'd love it if you could tell us a bit about yourself. First off, you have a background in theoretical physics, is that right? Yes, exactly. So you're not the first physicist we've had on the show, and I expect you won't be the last. What brought you from physics to biotech? Well, the chance, of course, but well, physics uh, has been uh, dealing with complex systems. So if you have some kind of system of ranks in physics, those who are doing complex correlated systems are well appreciated in the physics community. Living organisms are pretty complex systems to my taste. I think uh, biology is the next frontier in sciences. So biology is on the cusp of uh, becoming an exact science with the help of machine learning. But I also think with the help of techniques and tools that could be borrowed from uh, physics as well. So we built Jira uh, with the idea to apply ideas from physics of complex systems, strongly correlated systems, strongly interacting systems, to living systems with the idea to understand and uh, intervene against aging. Okay, that's fantastic. And I, I want to stay on this topic for a little while and talk about complex systems. So we have an intuition of what it means. Like we know that a rock isn't a complex system, a coconut mostly isn't, but a hedgehog is. But are there mathematical things that are true about all complex systems? You use terms like strongly interacting and correlated. So I'm wondering if in, in layman's terms, you could help us understand what the relevant features are of complex systems and how specifically that applies to phenomena like aging. This is a very good question. Complex systems is, of course, uh, a very wide umbrella. So mm -hmm. I think uh, the most interesting and challenging maybe a set of uh, issues that is actually studied by physics of complex systems is the emergence, the emergence of new properties. It's like whenever you have something that a property of a system that is not a property of its parts. So when more is different, when new properties emerge from interactions, suddenly, I mean, first, it's very interesting. Uh, we see it all the time in biology, not only in physics or biology, but also in social sciences, when you have properties of large collective of people starting doing some crazy and sometimes bad stuff. So the emergence is, I think, the most interesting phenomena under that umbrella. And uh, it turns out that exactly when these new properties emerge in complex systems, the scenarios, the patterns, how those new properties emerge turned out to be very universal. So the universality is a property of these complex systems to do more or less the same thing, irrespective from the properties of individual constituents. So when you have strong correlations, when you have strong interactions, the, particu the particularities of individual constituents, constituents of the systems are not important. It takes tens of thousands of people to do a revolution. So that's why you know, revolutions occur when conditions are right. And, uh, you know, the individual leaders are probably uh, contingent. Mm -hmm. So what I'm saying here is that whenever we have, for example, a living system, 
it has to respond to stresses on uh, very short times. So it has to do very specific things against very specific stressors or events. But if you look at that system over a long uh, run, on timescales of years or tens of years, like in human being, all those uh, individual uh, patterns and mechanisms average out. And what you see at the end of the day, it's pretty universal pattern. So when people are very different. You know that you can never predict what the person would tell to you maybe in a second, but you can more or less predict what the person would do to you and to others uh, on, a, on a matter of months and years. So it's very hard you know, to change your personality. So what, what we can do and what I think it's very, very good to learn how to do in uh, biological, in biology is to understand those universal properties that do not depend on, you know, fine details of uh, life histories and which the same uh, govern the development of uh, diseases like chronic diseases that take years to develop. And obviously aging, that is a very slow process that is so slow that almost everything average out, averages out and uh, people that are living under different conditions with totally different life histories are still living more or less the same long life. So please excuse me if I am messy with this answer, but uh, my take here is that Physics teaches you how to study universal properties of strongly interacting systems. Universal properties are those that are the result of this averaging that do not depend on the particularities, which are universal, robust. And uh, to my taste, and I think many people would agree with me, that aging has this kind of properties. It's very hard to modify aging in humans. Uh, lots of details are not important, and still we need tools uh, how to find those individual you know, targets and markers that are responsible for the control of human lifespan with the idea to develop an intervention that can have the strongest possible effect. One of the things I just wanted to highlight is a theme that I think we'll be returning to is the idea that multiple measurements over long timeframes allows you to extract certain facts and truths about complex systems that you couldn't detect if you're just making single snapshot kinds of measurements. And that's very important to the study of aging. Would you agree? Yes, uh, that's totally correct. I think this is, uh, this is another thing that physics can bring into biology. Most of the time in biology, you study case and controls, like healthy cells and cells that are taken from individuals suffering from a certain disease. In such a way, you never know how those cells came from those healthy cells at a younger age uh, to those uh, disease uh, exhibiting cells at an elder age. In many situations, the path is as important as the result. So if you don't understand the path, you cannot revert the effect of a disease, for example. So biologists understand this issue. So they study correlations. They teach you that correlations do not apply causation. In practical terms, it means that if you don't know the sequences of events, you never know what causes the events. It's very hard to distill the causes. So I think what is going to happen, in, let's say, five years from now is that uh, since we are living in the best of times, we have now hundreds of millions of electronic medical records, for example. We have tens of millions of people genotype. For the first time, we can see uh, human diseases and human biology in development since we have these records, what is called longitudinal measurements, multiple measurements on different times, we should be able to see how aging and diseases occur and co-occur, what acts on what, what causes what, and which is the role of molecular factors like, for example, gene variants on all of that, on those transition rates and everything. We need to learn how to do calculus 
how to generate orbits in uh, hmm. aging trajectory space and that understand which forces are shaping those trajectories and what is the role of the modifiable molecular factors. I think you might have already started to answer my next question and what you just said, but I wanted to bring the conversation back to Jiro and ask you, what inspired you to start a company that focuses on complex diseases and aging? It sounds from what you just said, like the time is now that we have opportunities now that we didn't have before, but what else went into the founding of the company? To me personally, this is the observation of negligible senescence. So I think that the most important observation or discovery in the whole field of uh, gerontology or geroscience, to my taste again, this is the observation that there are certain mammals that do not age. I think, well, I, I'm not a biologist by training, so I have heard that there are animals that do not age, but most of those animals were primitive. Sure. Yes. There are some clams. Yeah. There uh, are, I think yeah. the rockfish doesn't. Nobody cares. I mean, look at me, <laughs> rockfish, so why should I care? I would be rather doing, you know, some decent stuff like physics or complex systems. But, but <laughs> whales, I think, are thought to, certain whales are thought to not age yeah. in the same way. But, but look, I think that people have been suspecting that there are animals that do not age in a common definition, under the common definition. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was more like an anecdote. So I think only in the beginning of the 21st century, and look, if you look at you know ancient ep epos, you would know that people are interested in aging since, I don't know, since 5,000 years, at least if not more. Ten years ago, we know that there are mammals that do not age, and suddenly there are thousands of animals that are presumably not aging. So we have those bats, for example. We have multiple bats. We have whales. I think it's almost like criminal negligence in the field of science. I think this is our anthropocentric view that, you know, we're the best animals in the world and we age so that everyone else needs to age. I want to quickly cut you off. I want to clarify something for the listeners. So I mean, animals like bats and mole rats and whales, right, they still have lifespans. But when we say that they don't age, do you mean that the Gompertz curve has a particular shape, or do you yes. mean that, okay, so you mean that the rate of mortality doesn't rise with time I in can, some animals? Exactly. So I can, I think it's, it's very important to understand that in humans, uh, the chances to die of all causes increase yes. uh, exponentially in geometric progression. So they double every eight years. So that happens uh, roughly over the age of 40. So in the last half of your life, you have five doubling times. That's a lot. Right. Uh, if you look at those naked mole rats that have on average lifespan at least 2,000 years, if not more, but their chances to die do not increase. And that has been checked thoroughly by Kalika recently. I think it's interesting that you could not get this study funded by uh, National Institute of Health. So you had to get Google created to fund the study. But I think this is the most important observation. These guys still die, so they have diseases and they die from those diseases. But their chances to get those diseases do not increase. That means that they stay more or less in the same shape for a very long time. Fantastic. I really appreciate the clarification. And just a further clarification, we had a little bit of line noise during your answer. And I just wanted to specify that mole rats live a couple of a dozen years, not a couple of thousand. It was a little bit unclear. Do, 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 <laughs> thousands years, yes, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, 20 to 30 years. So, okay, so keep going. So if you think that humans could have the same property, if your chances to die would be the same as they are at about the age of 30, uh, you could live on average uh, a few hundreds years. So that's a lot. So for me, that was a very important uh, observation. So if these things may happen, so some animals are lucky uh, that they do not age for whatever reasons, 
it has to be some property of their regulatory networks. So it's like phase transition. So depending on certain parameters, uh, you may have either stable regulatory networks that do not amplify the noise. So you get some noise, some damage, some you know errors, some proteins misformed or everything like that. And uh, those errors could be uh, uh, removed quickly by repair systems or something like that. And then those animals would not change as they live. And uh, we had an idea that there could be some other kind of animals, probably like humans, that cannot control the damage. Think about this. When you have an exponential disintegration, most probably it means that uh, your organism state is not stable dynamically. It's like when you have a viral infection, each virus uh, infects a cell, produces a bunch of viral particles, and if those particles are not removed quickly by your immune system, then those uh, viral particles infect other cells, and on average, you start producing more viral particles per input uh, viral particle than one. In that situation, the total number of viral particles become exponentially large with time, and then you exponentially disintegrate. That's how an atomic bomb works. But if your immune system is good, and then you you remove most of the uh, viral particles, then you produce on average less than one particle per any input viral particle. And then in this case, you are stable and uh, you do not amplify the viral load and then the disease either remains uh, chronic forever or goes away by adaptive immune system. So we speculated that maybe regulatory networks in different animals are either stable or not, depending on whatever genetic factors and those who are stable are naked mole rats, whales, naked senescent guys. And those who are not stable disintegrate exponentially. So we, I mean, this is a stability property. You cannot analyze it without uh, accessing these trajectories. So in order to understand if the system is stable or not, you cannot find it. You cannot understand it from snapshots. So we decided to build first a body of research by analyzing those longitudinal trajectories in different animals and to, and to understand if there are animals who are stable or not. The, the punch here is that if you are not stable, just removing the damage would not extend your lifespan by a lot hmm. because any random damage would be amplified. So we built Jira. I mean, the, the dream behind the, behind Jira is to, to find ways to characterize this, well, first to relate stability and aging, which I think we succeeded to do. We published a bunch of good papers in, in great journals over the last years. And second, we are looking for ways to classify different animals into stable and unstable regimes, find factors that are controlling the stability, because it's the stability is the property that is controlling lifespan. And what are you finding so far? Well, that was uh, very far from what we expected, by the way. So uh, first, uh, with some pleasure, we found, and now we just published a paper in Age Communications this year, we found that mice are archetypical examples of unstable systems. So these guys are so short-lived that apparently evolution had no incentive to build any dynamic stability in, the, in their regulatory networks. Any damage gets amplified, any errors, any deviations of physiological factors from the norm get exponentially amplified, and the uh, the doubling rate, the, the exponent, the, the rate, the amplification rate is exactly the same as the uh, doubling rate in the mortality in the Gompertz equation, in the mortality rate doubling hmm. time. So you measure the exponent, the same exponent as in the mortality log, the same exponent can be measured from the longitudinal trajectories in these animals. That's the punch from 
archetypical example. So mice are literally dying of exponential instability. This is the cause of death. As soon as the total number of damage detected in these animals exceeds a certain threshold, they are killed by uh, doctors in the lab because they are too sick by ethical regulations to seek uh, to stay alive. So then in humans, so well, we, we thought that great, now mice are wonderful model of aging, exponential, uh, we know everything about them. We can use uh, machine learning to actually find these measures of damage. We can see how those measures of damage are changed by different uh, drugs, experimental drugs, known drugs, uh, diets, everything. So we have lots of control of aging in mice. Maybe I should also tell you here is that it looks scary, this dynamic instability. But in fact, if your system is not stable, uh, you cannot recover from perturbation. Which means that if you do a life-extending intervention like tropomycin, for example, you remove the damage by the drug, and then your treated mice will be always younger than the control mice because there is no recovery, right? So we can produce rejuvenation. Okay, this is an important concept, and I actually want to spend a little bit more time with it because it's it's a little non-intuitive, and I want to make sure that I understand it. So to go back in the storytelling a little bit, one of the things that happens as we get older is we lose resilience and we lose stability. We lose dynamic stability. We become dynamically unstable. And what what, you, what I heard you say just now, and I want to make sure I understand this, is that because older animals are more unstable, that it's actually easier for an intervention of some kind to have a long-term effect because the state of being old is not itself a very resilient one. Am I getting that about yes. right? Yes, this is paradoxical. I mean, in a very strict definition of rejuvenation, it's easier to rejuvenate an animal which doesn't have any resilience because resilience means the ability to get back to the norm after the intervention. If you are resilient, either a bad effect like smoking or a good effect as your future anti-aging drug, will be small. I mean, the more resilient you are, the smaller is the effect. And if you are resilient, then the effect will disappear as soon as the system gets back to the norm. As soon as you stop the treatment, then in a few weeks, a healthy individual, all the effect of your anti-aging drugs will disappear if you are resilient. If you are not resilient, and that's what we have uh, published last year in humans, so maybe we should get back a little bit here, is that when we applied the same algorithms, Uh, To quantify aging in humans, we found that most of the humans are, contrary to mice, resilient, which means that if you push me around a little bit in a few weeks, I will forget about that because my organism state will recover and get back to the norm. What happens over time, and that's what we observed and published last year, what happens over time is that our ability to get back to the norm actually deteriorates as we are aging and we're still stable. But the time that it takes to get back to the norm increases. So the older we are, the longer it takes to get back to the norm. That's what I think everyone knows. When you are young, you can start partying on Friday and pretend to be working on Monday. (laughs) And uh, if you are a bit older, I mean, you have more means to party. But uh, most of the people don't do that because it's very hard to even pretend to be working on Monday, right? So it takes longer time for you to recover from, uh, let's say, life-shortening intervention. Let's put it like this but also uh, from life-increasing interventions as well. So what we found is that the gradual loss of resilience that occurs in all of us aging humans 
leads to increase of the range of the fluctuations of our physiological parameters. And then as those fluctuations become longer, larger and larger, as we are living longer and longer, once in a while, random stresses push us away from this dynamic stability range and we stochastically become unstable. And uh, instability leads to development of multiple diseases and uh, quick uh, death, unfortunately. So in that unstable regime, we look in terms of the dynamics of uh, age-dependent factors, we look more like mice than humans. So basically humans live two lives. So most of our lives we live almost like naked mole rats, we're dynamically stable, okay, we have some deterioration, but uh, this is always small. But then suddenly we lose dynamic stability late in life after the age of 30, 60. And then uh, we become exponentially unstable, develop diseases and unfortunately die. So mice can only model that late life on morbidity and mortality in humans, which means that you can use the drugs that we're studying mice to produce rejuvenation of late life humans and uh, increase their uh, lifespan past health span, unfortunately, incrementally. So if you can only increase your lifespan once you're already unstable, the overall effect of such interventions on lifespan would be, unfortunately, incremental and limited. So that really tells us that in order to understand human longevity, it's essential to study human aging, that there's a limit to how much models are ever going to be able to tell us, as long as we're using mice. Exactly. So that's why it's very important to, well, uh, first, we understand now that it's the resilience that is the key aging phenotype, is the key aging property in humans. We also understand that we cannot model resilient uh, humans in mice. We need to find other animals, or we have to study human data with a lot of machine learning and AI. Right. And I mean, at BioAge, we totally agree with you. This is our approach. We take longitudinal human cohorts, blood samples taken over decades, and then you know, generate omics data from that and then use machine learning to identify pathways that are the most predictive of subsequent health and mortality. And it, we don't frame it in terms of dynamic instability, but certainly the underlying approaches that we're taking are similar to the ones that you're advocating, that there are just things about the way that humans grow old that are unique to us, or at least unique to animals that have a long period of dynamic stability and resilience. And that in order to find meaningful drug targets, we're going to have to study that process. We can't just study a short-lived animal like a mouse, which, as you say, is basically, in some sense, born old because they're born without resilience. They live a non-resilient life throughout their entire lifespan. Exactly. Fantastic. Well, I, I, I want to touch on one topic from your paper before we go back to talking about Jira. So there's this one cool thing that your machine learning algorithm computed from all of these vast longitudinal measurements of aging mice. And there were like, there were tens of thousands of mice in this data set. Am I right? Yes, exactly. Okay. And many, many samples, which is something you can do with a laboratory animal. You can take blood from it whenever you want. And one of the things that your ML algorithm did, it was a deep neural network approach. And what came out of it was this thing called the dynamic frailty indicator. Could you tell us what that is? As we started uh, from the very beginning, uh, remember those uh, overtunes to complex systems. So in these uh, emergent phenomena in complex systems, uh, that, that in those universal properties that are associated with this kind of emergent properties, there are two that you almost universally observe. So whenever your system, the complex system decides to disintegrate, you start seeing two things. So first, uh, your fluctuations increase. And second, the amount of correlations in your systems increase. So for example, when stock exchange decides to collapse, you see lots of correlations between individual share prices. 
So when you, next time your oil price is going to correlate with Bitcoin, you should you know look for a shelter. <laughs> uh, that's uh, a kind of uh, red flag. Whenever this is the uh, a sign of uh, disintegration. So the mere fact is that uh, mice are exponentially disintegrating animals means that uh, close to this disintegration point, most of their properties need to become correlated. So that's why, even though you're observing many parameters uh, for the long-term dynamics or aging, since most of those on large time scales, most of those parameters are correlated, you can actually combine them if they are correlated. You, I mean, there is not a lot of information. One of them, it's like stock exchange index, right? This mm-hmm. is a quantity that uh, describes your stock exchange state very well. So what our machine learning algorithm actually does, it builds an index from all those physiological parameters. This mm-hmm. is the common part that explains the joint correlation of those parameters. And uh, the, the physical sciences are telling you that close to the disintegration point, there should be such a parameter. That parameter should explain most of the variance of the data, and it must have an exponential dynamics. So that's what we tasked our AI algorithm to do. We built a future telling machine, so we collected all the physiological factors. We asked our algorithm to condense all those measures into a single variable that would be the most informative for prediction of the future state of the animal, of the future physiological parameters. And we demonstrated indeed that such variable exists, explains most of the variance in the data and also in the future data, and has the exponential dynamics that has exactly the same doubling time as the mortality rate doubling time. So we succeeded in uh, identifying factor that is controlling mortality in these animals and is observable, derivable from the physiological measurements. Thank you so much for that detailed explanation. I'm now going to ask a couple of follow-up questions to test my own understanding and to build toward a question that I really want to ask you. So the dynamic frailty index is essentially saying how close you are to this transition between the resilient phase of life and the non-resilient phase, or it's, it's how close you are to the disintegration stage. Is that right? Yeah, this is a reasonable way uh, to put it. So uh, different uh, organisms are born, either stable or not. And then over time, the deviation from the you know, best stable point either is limited and fluctuating if you are stable or uh, the deviation increases exponentially. So since mice are unstable, the deviation of the organism state from whatever useful norm actually increases exponentially. And the distance from that useful norm is actually measured by this dynamic frailty index. So you can interpret it roughly as the total number of damage in all systems that has incurred in the course of this dynamic instability. Okay. So... We know that if you're a mouse, you don't want the dynamic frailty index to be high because that means that you are closer to exponential deterioration. You are closer to death, correct? Yes. Okay. So in that sense, I understand that I'm stretching this a little bit. In that sense, the frailty index is kind of like a true biological age. The higher it is, yes. the closer you are to dying. Okay, great, great. I'm glad that I'm getting this because it, it allows me to ask the next question. So this is a theme that our listeners will be familiar with from other conversations with other guests. And one of the big challenges with any true biological age or aging clock approach is relevance. You want to show that a set of features, sure, you can show that a set of features is correlated with chronological age, but you also want to show that if you speed up aging in some way, 
you speed up that clock or increase that age. And if you slow down aging in some meaningful way, you slow down the clock or slow down that or decrease that true biological age. Because then you can start to have confidence that if an intervention decreases the age or slows the clock or however we want to put it, it will be beneficial in some real way. And you actually showed this in the Nature Communications paper, right? You, you looked at models of premature aging and delayed aging, and you saw the predicted change in the frailty index. Is that right? Yes, exactly. All right. Tell us, tell us exactly what you did. What, what was the model of premature aging? What was the model of slowed aging? And what was the finding? I need to tell you that this work has been done in collaboration with uh, Andrei Gutkov's group mm -hmm. from Roswell Park. So Thank we you. enjoyed uh, access to their data, but also to their experiments. That's very important. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Judge, I'm not a biologist, so I don't, uh, I'm not allowed to touch the unions. That's very important. We take all kinds here on the podcast. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the model of accelerated aging is uh, hyper diet. So we know that in mice, high-fat diet kills pretty quickly. And uh, a little bit more surprising fact uh, was that the effect of high-fat diet is sex-dependent uh, uh, in mice. As far as mm -hmm. I remember, it kills male males better than females. What uh, Andre did is that they were feeding animals with a uh, Western diet, as dangerous as, as it sounds. <laughs> and then uh, they, they, they took uh, blood draws and uh, we computed the biological age from the physiological factors, blood cell counts in those animals. And then uh, this is uh, a very long experiment. So uh, it was known that uh, animals that were fed with high-fat diet uh, actually lived shorter. So what was interesting is that at half point, so in half of their lifespan, the measurement of the biological age Half-life before their death was already showing that the animals that are on the high-fat diet are biological age uh, elder than the animals uh, in the control group. So it does the the elevated uh, levels of the biological age early in life in these unstable animals correlate to the lifespan. And then in the other experiment, we tried the intervention that is life extending. We know that for sure that tropomycin doesn't mean that it works very well in humans. Very careful here. We know for sure that tropomycin extends lifespan in mice. Mm -hmm. What's less appreciated is that if the animals are dynamically unstable, as I told you, if you do an experiment in time-resolved manner, so if you do a short treatment with tropomycin, the rejuvenating effect of the tropomycin works only during the treatment. So you reduce the biological age of the animals by the tropomycin relative to the control during the treatment. And then the prediction of the theory was, remember the animals are not stable so that they cannot recover to the control, to, mm -hmm. the, to the equilibrium. There is no equilibrium. That means that if you reduce the biological age relative to the control, then the biological age should stay below the control for the rest of their lives. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That means that those animals would live longer even if the aromycin treatment was only active during a short time. So that's why, I mean, first we demonstrated that the biological age drops during the treatment and then is, uh, remains below the control for the rest of our measurements for a few months after the treatment. So you produce rejuvenation according to the biological age in, in the mice and treatment mice. But also think how many experiments you have heard over the last few months when people were treating mice with different interventions for a short period of time and were surprised that these animals are living longer. That's, to my taste, is a wonderful confirmation of the unstable nature of the uh, regulatory systems. These 
you can actually have a persistent effect of short-term treatments. That's what Kirkland, Jim Kirkland, by the way, Professor Jim Kirkland calls hit and run tactics with mm-hmm. analytics. Thank you so much for giving us the rundown on that. And I, I again, just to emphasize for the listeners, it's very satisfying both that they received the confirmation of the idea that Dr. Fedichev just enumerated, but also that you have a metric, the dynamic frailty indicator, that behaves as you would expect if you're intervening in aging in ways that are known to influence lifespan in particular ways. This is a fascinating paper. It's actually relatively accessible. I was scanning through it. Um, I think it's a very well-written paper. And I think that even if you're not a mathematical biologist or somebody who knows about machine learning, you, the reader, you, the listener could benefit from it. So I encourage everyone to give it a look and I'll put links to the paper in the show notes for this episode. All right. So I could talk about this paper with you all day, but I one of my missions was to talk about Jiro and I want to do a little subject change and, and go back to that. Ultimately, what Jiro wants to do is, is create drugs. So like, what's the drug discovery approach? I think everyone would agree that uh, modern biotech is omnipotent. If you have a target, the modern biotech produces a drug candidate acting against that target that uh, gets to whatever tissue you want, hits the target, and it's not toxic uh, within, I think, maybe two years, at most three years. Mm-hmm. You have something that you can test in humans. Everything works in mice, or in vitro, then in mice most of the time. And then you go to humans and for whatever magic reason, if it's an acute disease, those drugs mostly work. Uh, look at COVID, for example, we had a vaccine within half a year and then within two years since the emergence of the new disease, we have now two drugs from Pfizer and Merck mm-hmm. that are working in humans, right? Just in two years, you have a solution. Wonderful. But then when it gets to a non-acute disease, to a chronic disease like diabetes type 2, suddenly you use metformin, which is a folks medicine drug, which is technically a supplement. This is a herbal-derived product, which is, of course, now synthesized. But it looks like our progress in chronic diseases is very slow. It's very slow because even though you know, genome is cheaper, we have uh, genetic therapies, all kinds of new therapeutic modalities, everything. But for reasons that we need to understand, it's very hard to do drugs against chronic diseases in humans. And we had an idea that this is maybe because uh, when we are trying to make a new drug against chronic diseases in humans, we are taking too many assumptions. Like we have first an experiment in vitro that takes a few days. Then we have an experiment in mice that takes a few months. By the way, most of the time, mice don't have diseases that humans have. You have to have a genetically engineered mice to have a disease like Alzheimer's disease in mice, which has nothing to do with our naturally occurring Alzheimer's disease. So all of that brought us to the idea that most of the time, modern drugs do not work in humans because the physiology of the diseases are totally different from the physiology of the diseases in mice. So humans are not mice. And uh, I think I provided you a convincing example that when it comes to aging, for example, uh, humans are closer to naked mole rats than to mice. And we know almost nothing about naked mole rats. So we started looking for a let's say, product market fit with the following idea. So we wanted to have a company that solves aging. And uh, we are very extremist here, pretty radical. We want to solve that aging that is resilience, that mm-hmm. is not frailty. So that looks a little bit more remote from, uh, let's say, medical practice than uh, most of the other longevity projects. So it's uh, not very easy to stay alive with this kind of a radical approach. Of course, we're making it up with wonderful publications. We're working with the key opinion leaders. 
but that doesn't bring you money. So whenever you are telling to your investors or fellow by tech entrepreneurs that, look, guys, I don't want to do frailty, I want to do resilience, they say, thank you very much, good luck. Mm-hmm. So the interesting discovery here was that, in fact, pharma companies have problems with aging. It's not like they like aging, they don't want to do drugs against aging, but they have problems with, with aging. And the problem is this. So all pharma companies understand that hu- real-world evidence, human data helps cure diseases. All of them are doing genetics, all of them are using electronic medical records in order to understand diseases. Imagine that you are taking a chronic disease, like chronic kidney disease, and you are trying to find genes that are controlling the risks of those diseases. There are lots of them, like mm-hmm. 700 size on your genome are associated with that disease, 700 possible drugs. Wonderful. The only problem is that the same genetic factors are controlling diabetes, hypertension. So remember, I started with the idea that whenever a complex system decides to disintegrate, everything becomes correlated, which means that all your diseases become correlated. You don't mm-hmm. understand. If you want to solve a specific disease, a chronic kidney disease, what should you do? Make a drug against chronic kidney disease or first cure diabetes? What causes what? Is it like diabetes causes chronic kidney diseases or what's going on? Right. So without deconvoluting those factors, you cannot actually generate a drug because everything becomes correlated to aging. And most of your data science is telling you first solve aging and then, well, the disease will go away. And that's not something that pharma companies want to hear because they Mm. want to find a drug that would work independently from aging most of the time. They want to find a drug that would work even in a very unhealthy or elder individual. So, I think now I can tell you with some pride is that it will be, there will be a collaboration with a major pharma company announced in the beginning of January. It's already signed. Basically, they hired us, Jira, uh, with the idea that since we know so much about aging from all those machine learning models, maybe we can help them to regress out aging from the risks of a specific disease to make sure that they can find targets, genes that are controlling the disease unrelated to aging. So that mm. brought us to the idea that let's try to build a company that is the best in terms of quantification of aging in longitudinal data. And this Nature Communications is just the first uh, paper that is telling that we are capable of doing something like that. Then we would have two kinds of risk factors in those models. There would be risk factors that are associated with aging and senescence. In humans, these are two different things. And then on top of that, there would be risk factors of individual diseases, independent from aging. Those which are independent from aging could be licensed to pharma companies or drug discovery projects. And the factors that we are regressing out for them, the factors that are controlling aging, would be used for internal drug discovery projects. Okay. So this uh, brought us peace you know, of mind and unity of invention and hopefully a business model. Fantastic. Well, congratulations about the deal that you've signed with the big pharma company. I, I look forward to hearing that announcement in early January. I think your episode will have come out a couple of weeks before that, but it's it's great news. And I, I love the way in which your mission to tackle aging is dovetailing with pharma's mission to treat particular diseases. It sounds to me like you're going to help pharma do that in a more enlightened way while you take what's left over from that and go after the big problem that you're the most passionate about. That's how I'm feeling right now, because over a few years before, it was almost like a bipolar disorder in the company, because you want to do one thing and kind of the market and the world is telling you to do the other. So, in fact, now I think that everything converges. First, I believe that pharma industry is full of very clever guys. 
So we should not underestimate them. They are trying to understand what aging is. It's just they are not yet ready to, to build drugs against aging, but uh, they have people who are studies in essence already. So I think, let's say, two to five years from now, Big Pharma will do analytics or will in-license analytics. And then once they do that, I think they will start doing anti-aging drugs as well. I think by bringing these ideas from Jira Science, like your company is doing, like our company, I mean, with like all our community is doing, I think we will find ways to educate them. Uh, who knows? I mean, maybe in uh, in five years, uh, one of the major farmers will start doing drugs against aging using the techniques and uh, the experience that we will help them uh, to create. I think we're very close to this uh, tipping point in the industry. That is such an optimistic idea. And I think that creates a perfect point for us to depart from the conversation. This has been so much fun, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to talk to you guys. Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioAge Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.